the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's guest, just want to mention we've got a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there or potentially throwing us a nice review on iTunes. If you leave us a review that says banger episode, I will give you a shout out on next week's episode. But in order to properly introduce this week's guest, I'll throw it to my very capable colleague, Taylor Atkins, to do those honors. Well, today... Cooper and I are very excited to announce that we have with us Ray Brazier. And Ray has translated the works of Quentin Mayasu, Alain Badu, Francois Laruelle. In fact, many of our listeners may already know this. I myself and a great many people became familiar with these thinkers through his translations. He's also written Nile Unbound, but he's also written more recently on Wilfred Sellers, and many other topics. And Ray, we're just extremely delighted to have you here today. And I'm so glad that you decided to come talk to us. Thanks for inviting me. So the big question that I always like to ask, and you can tackle this in any way you want. We all kind of have our stories about encountering philosophy in these, obviously these big questions about what it means to think. And do you have a story to share with us or or, or some memories about when you first started becoming interested in philosophy and and some of the encounters with thoughts, ideas, thinkers? I first became aware of thought or I discovered what philosophy was when I was 13. I was in a you know a secondary, you know, secondary modern school in, in Scotland where I grew up. And um, we had uh, a history class. And one week the topic was uh, ancient Greece, you know, the contribution ancient Greek contribution to kind of, you know, to, to civilization. And uh, there was an assignment, as I recall, there was, um, you know, we were all invited to go and uh, look up one, um, one aspect of uh, you know, the Greek contribution to, you know, the Western civilization. And for reasons that I am unsure of, I decided, um, you know, to look up philosophy and I did so via a small encyclopedia set. We had no works of philosophy. You know, I lived with my mother and sister and my grandparents. We had, um, you know, no, there wasn't, there weren't many books in the house, but there was a, an encyclopedia, I think from the 1940s or 1950s that my grandparents had bought, I assume. And there was an entry on philosophy. And I read that entry and it was, um, and what I was particularly fascinated by Zeno's paradoxes. That's the thing that really yeah. got me hooked. So I read, you know, 
there's a kind of a, a summary of uh, you know Zeno's arguments, and mm-hmm. I, I found this incredibly uh, you know fascinating that you could prove you know that things don't move, that nothing really moves. I thought this was so cool, and um, and I think uh, I can't remember to be honest. I'm not sure if I wrote something about it for class, mm-hmm. but um, once that happened, that really got me hooked, and then I continued pursuing this interest on my own in, in the public library. Scotland in the 1970s, you know, had a public library system and uh, I would go, you know, before and after, or like during and after school, when I had some free time, I would go to the uh, public library and, you know, loiter in the philosophy section and uh, just randomly kind of, you know, start kind of uh, trying to read stuff, you know. And um, I'd also... I knew who Sartre was because there was a kind of, um, you know, because my father was French, you know, so I could read mm-hmm. French. So I read Sartre's uh, Nausea. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I can't say, you know, I really understood. But then I became, so I, I kind of got very interested in kind of, you know, Sartre and then obviously, you know, Heidegger. And mm-hmm. uh, so I would, I would, just kind of try to kind of read this stuff in, in the kind of the public library. And uh, what I read in what order was completely, it depended like on how much of it I could understand, really. So it was it was very kind of uh, haphazard. You know, the fascination develops and I, um, it's, so this, I kept doing this and I left school when I was like uh, 15 because I really disliked school intensely and had you know no desire to pursue kind of you know tertiary education so i can left school but you know carried on this interest and um kept reading i always liked you know reading in general but i kept reading philosophy and was and i kept doing this after i left school i kind of i did various jobs various kind of various types of manual labor for about between the ages of 17 and 27 you know, when I hit my late 20s, I was still kind of, you know, reading philosophy in my spare time. And I thought, you know, I really, um, I was kind of fed up with doing the kind of jobs I was doing. And I thought, I'm really interested in philosophy. I care more about this and I'm, I'm more interested in it than I am in anything else. So why don't I try to pursue it academically? And it was then possible to kind of just to, to be a mature student, you know, I was 27 when I, I embarked on my first degree, but I was lucky enough then that um, I was able to get funding to be a full-time kind of uh, undergraduate in my late 20s. Um, that meant, effectively, it was materially possible for me to stop working right. and devote my and, try, and to get a philosophy degree, which it's not that's no longer possible. This was in the very early 1990s in London. I did this so. And then I just kept going, I guess. And um, I just became more compulsive and more addictive, you know, the more yeah. I, I did it. Is there someone or a movement or perhaps an individual that you sort of latched onto in particular? Someone perhaps, maybe someone that excites you the most and perhaps even influenced you the most over the course of your intellectual journey? Uh, you mean a philosopher who's yes. had more influence on me? Or a teacher uh, and or yeah. a teacher. When I went to university, so I went to um, what was 
called uh, a new university in 1992. Polytechnics, as they were then called in, in the UK, became universities. Polytechnics were obviously kind of, you know, then considered kind of, you know, they were not kind of prestigious in any way, shape or form, but they were places where lots of working class people and mature students kind of would go and try to get an education. So I ended up doing my degree at the University of North London, which no longer exists, you know, and uh, it was had been called North London Polytechnic, was then the University of North London. And the lectures there, they all impressed me. They all impressed me because they were, by their patience, you know, their, their depth of understanding, their modesty, their dedication. None of them were careerists. None of them, I think, you know, they were philosophers. They were people who loved philosophy and thought teaching philosophy for very little money was the most valuable thing they could do. And they did it. And that was inspiring. They were all yeah. inspiring. And in a way, their selflessness, their lack of um, egotism, their dedication to teaching and to teaching seriously, you know, for very little in the way of either kind of uh, monetary or academic reward you know um, was inspiring and that's so that inspired me and i still think of those they're exemplary for me you know they're still exemplary for me and um you know by the time i made the decision to study philosophy full time i was aware of the analytic and one thing i didn't want to do is i didn't i didn't want simply to kind of to pursue i wanted to become a philosopher and not just read up on the one or two philosophers or the type of philosophy that I found personally appealing. This is very important to me. For instance, in my, you know, I read a lot of Nietzsche. Okay? Mm -hmm. I'm like every, <laughs> yeah. some, some, someone should make a film. I was a teenage Nietzschean. Like, yes, you know, uh, common refrain, yes. Like it, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. So like everyone, you know, is, um, and it, it dawned on me that, um, well, I could spend the rest of my life just kind of reading Nietzsche and mm -hmm filtering reality and my experiences through this Nietzschean kind of lens. But I thought it was kind of too easy and lazy. And I thought yeah. it's not um, credible, however kind of um, pleasurable or satisfying, you know, I may mm -hmm. find Nietzsche. That's not, you know, that's not, philosophy is surely not just about kind of constantly kind of having your prejudices and predispositions mm -hmm. confirmed. They should be interrogated. So I wanted to become, I wanted to, to know the history of philosophy and to understand the history of these philosophical problems and the different positions on these problems and not simply be a kind of a disciple. So someone who just, who parrots another kind of a right. tutelary figure. And that's why I also wanted to learn about analytic philosophy. Although mm. continental philosophy was more spontaneously appealing to me, but I thought it was not possible to dismiss <laughs> analytic philosophy as mere kind of, you know, scholastic kind of, um, you know, nitpicking, as, mm -hmm. as many continental philosophers do. So I thought, and I learned about analytic philosophy and forced myself to read it. And it was hard, you know, in a way, <laughs> yes. the point of getting an education in philosophy was like to learn stuff, to be forced to learn stuff you don't particularly enjoy. And it's important, as I now realize, because that's the only way in which you actually learn. Mm -hmm. If you don't, it's by reading stuff that you may find really boring and uninteresting <laughs> and annoying. And then you years later, you realize, actually, this guy who 
I read as an undergraduate and who really annoyed me. He's right, actually. What he said about X, you know, I thought, you know, I preferred X or Y, you know, but now I realize, having kind of thought about this for a few years now, that so-and-so is right, you know. So I think that that's really valuable. I wanted to get a philosophical education and, you know, so that I could become a philosopher, which means being able to kind of, you know, think through philosophical, identify philosophical problems independently and think through them independently as opposed to merely kind of you know, becoming an expert on what one or two philosophers have said about a problem. I really like this explanation, and it's fascinating for me, this, this notion of reading those with whom you don't necessarily agree or who don't spontaneously just give us pleasure, even though there is the sense in which we are drawn to certain thinkers and that certain thinkers do do hit those those buttons for us. Nietzsche himself says, I mean, everything you said very much could have been said, uh, or, or Nietzsche says in, in a certain way, right? Like, if you want to follow me, you have to lose me. These other things about, about not just parroting, as you put it. And I think that that's one of those things that kind of brings me to the, the next question. I mean, I mentioned in the intro, but you are, in my mind, responsible for introducing a lot of these thinkers that in greater or lesser degree, have enjoyed a certain popularity now in, in English. I mean, Badu is, is probably the most extraordinary example of that, but I am indebted to being introduced to Laura Well by, by your translations and your writing on him. And you translated After Finitude, Mayus's book, pretty much almost at, right after it, it, it came out. So did you already have, well, first of all, I guess, that would be a question of if you already had a relationship with Mayasu. I, I assume you you may have, but talk a little bit about, about the translations of these works that now are more and more, they're building up steam and snowballing and having this huge impact, at least on the continental side, hopefully on the analytic side, because each one of these thinkers that I just mentioned, Badu, Larwell, Mayasu, they have something to speak to both sides of the quote-unquote divide. I read after Finitude in French. Mm -hmm. Not long after it was published, I was very impressed. I thought it was like brilliant. And I wrote to him. I just contacted him. I didn't know him. I hadn't met him. I knew he had been a student of Bad News. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd already kind of translated some of, you know, Bad News work. You know, Alberto Toscano and I had edited, edited and translated the theoretical writings collection, which had been published a couple of years before. After Finitude was interesting, not just, not just for what it said, but for how it said it. And in a way... Because it was so, you know, its style is so, you know, it has this kind of limpid clarity yes. mm -hmm. and uh, simplicity. And it's it's not at all like what continental philosophy is supposed to be, like, you know, this right. really kind of impenetrable, you know, jargon-laden kind of word salad, you know. So um, I thought that was also kind of important. And it offered arguments it dared to be clear and it dared you, invited you to kind of, you know, to disagree with it and to say, to try to figure out what's wrong with it. And I, and I like that. I, mean, I was very sympathetic to its general claims. So that's why I translated it. And I, I was able to do it fairly quickly. And uh, yeah, I was very happy to do it. And I think that the thread, you know, the French thinkers who, well, the first French thinker I translated was La Ruelle. I started translating some of his pieces when I was still a graduate student because I was writing my thesis on his work. And he interested me because I came across, again, his work 
just when I embarked on my, my MA in philosophy and mm-hmm. again by chance. And it was very intriguing because, well, as, as I'm sure you know, he mentioned his key influences were like Nietzsche, Heidegger, Derrida and Deleuze, these four thinkers you know, who I, I was also interested in and who I wanted to study. He seemed to have been able to kind of absorb their work and he seemed to have a kind of a critical perspective. He seemed to have, to have distilled you know, the fundamental consequences and implications of their respective projects and be able to kind of construct something original on the basis of that, uh, you know, that absorption. And I found this very interesting also because I was very aware that one of the, you know, the problems with common philosophy is that you're almost encouraged to become a disciple. You know, you set up camp right. within continental philosophers' fervor, and then you just you interpret and produce commentary. So, and whether it's Heidegger or Derrida or Deleuze, you know, it's like, that's the way kind of Anglophone content philosophy works, okay? So I didn't want to do that. So I, so Larell was a way of talking about these figures without simply having to, you know, become a Deleuzean or a Derridean right. or a Heideggerian. And it took me a while to understand. I mean, it was also intriguing on its own because it was really fascinating. I was fascinated by... His claim that non-philosophy was a science, mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting because even then I was, uh, I was getting a little bit kind of, uh, I found the kind of uh, the automatic, you know, the claim that science is, you know, is, is this kind of uh, defective kind of thinking compared mm-hmm. to kind of philosophy. I was, I was, I didn't know much about, I didn't know very much about science, but like, um, I was suspicious of this kind of rhetoric. So I liked the fact that he was reclaiming the term science for what he was doing. I thought that was a really interesting move, actually. So that also attracted me to, to his work. And yeah, so it seemed very unlike, and Badiou, I read, you know, a little bit during my PhD, I read Being in Events. I thought it was amazing. I read Being in Events yeah. in the, you know, I think late towards, you know, in the, as I was completing my uh, PhD, I thought it was a, an amazing book, kind of um, really extraordinary. Its depth and its precision, and it's uh, the fact that it consists of these interlinked arguments, which are developed over hundreds of pages. Its rigor, I find these like really extraordinary and really mm-hmm. compelling. So these three thinkers, you know, Larrell, Badiou, Neassou, they seem to be kind of breaking with a, a kind of orthodoxy, a continental mm-hmm. orthodoxy, you know, that continental philosophy is about liking art and poetry mm-hmm. more than science and mathematics. They also seemed um, not Heideggerian, which although I have, I studied Being in Time carefully, it's a book that I, I read as an undergraduate and that, you know, made a big impression on me. I thought it was like, it's an amazing book, but I think Heidegger's Influence is kind of, you know, very bad. And I think Heideggerianism is, is not a good thing. <laughs> Even if uh, Being in Time is a great work, but, you know, I think that the, the stuff that comes after that, I'm not a fan of. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I was also very interested in Levinas. I was interested in Levinas's yes. of, uh, interesting of Heidegger. So he was also someone who I was reading towards the tail end of my undergraduate degree and the beginning of my master's degree. So... Larrell, Badiou, Meyasu seem to have, um, although they're very different and they're mm-hmm. 
critical, you know, their projects are kind of, you know, fundamentally incompatible, but there's a, a sensibility, you could say a kind of a rationalist sensibility. There's a yeah. rationalist strain running through all three thinkers, which I think now is what actually drew me to them, what I find attractive. And in a certain way, they each share a resistance to the dominance of phenomenology. Yes. At, at the time, I tried reading Husserl <laughs> as, a, as an undergraduate, and um, I've read Logical Investigations, and I think it's, it's a great book. At the time, I tried reading Husserl, and I just I find it incredibly annoying. annoying. Yes, yes. <laughs> annoying for the same reason that Gilbert Ryle said it was phenomenology. It was annoying. It was like... Um, too many <laughs> pots and pans you know, <laughs> with labels and not enough kind of, you know, oh, ingredients or, or materials. For I love that. I feel so much words, better so. about my Husserl opinions now. Um, thank you. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think logical investigations is great. And um, I now think that there's much more in Husserl than I was able to kind of you know, detect at the time. So like I've, I've relaxed my views on that. People who just, seem to find their consciousness and their subjectivity endlessly fascinating. I also thought that was a little bit kind of uh, <laughs> dubious. Yes. Um, I find it hard to believe that the starting point for uh, philosophy was like your subjectivity. I was like, mm-hmm. now there's more to it than that. And I've since kind of, you know, rediscovered the kind of, you know, the weight of uh, the insights of German idealism. But at the time, it just sounded like, why are you obsessed with with uh, your subjectivity and your, mm-hmm. you know, and so I was attracted to kind of uh, philosophical positions that were, you know, to, to a philosophy of the concept as opposed yeah. to a philosophy of, you know, of experience and selfhood, which did not seem very appealing. Those were the uh, the common strands running through the thinkers that interested me. And on top of the resistance or pushback against phenomenology, each of them in their own way shares an aversion to correlationism, or obviously what Harmon calls philosophy of access. And Mayasu makes that front and center, but you've also teased out how each of them specifically constitutes an attack on this kind of predominant strain of thinking that you can see kind of running throughout the history of philosophy, at least as far back as Parmenides, right, with thinking of being are the same. Do you want to say a little bit about, about that? Because that aspect comes out very clearly in, in Nile and Bound is tackling with how the correlational strain is this kind of resilient, it keeps cropping back up, almost like a hydra, right? You, if you cut off one of its heads, it, it kind of regrows even more resiliently. Do you want to say a little bit about, the, about this? Do you, does that also kind of orient your, your interest in, in these thinkers and, and your, your own research? It did at the time, and that's like so, like you know, Laurel's defense of realism, transcendental realism. You know, I thought that was a really a fascinating provocation in the climate of, you know, he's writing this in the eighties and you know, early nineteen nineties, and this seemed, again, it was it seemed like a wolf. A, anyone who's familiar with content philosophy would this would be kind of you know nonsensical or like something that is impossible to defend for a sophisticated philosopher, and yet this is exactly what. Laruel was proposing to, to rehabilitate. That's also kind of, um, interestingly enough, when I was an undergraduate, the one area or the one kind of um, strand of contemporary analytic philosophy that I found immediately compelling in a ways in which lots of other analytic philosophy was not at all compelling to me was the, the, 
debates about realism and anti-realism, mm-hmm. which I, I studied a little bit. I read some of that literature as an undergraduate. You know, I had realist sympathies, you know, inclinations mm-hmm. even then. Although, you know, I, I understood the, the sophistication of the anti-realist argumentation. But, but I thought that was a fascinating, because it seemed a lot at stake. That seemed to be a really, it wasn't trivial. The kind of the, the consequences of this kind of uh, debate were far from trivial. So that was something that I found very interesting. Quine, actually, was the analytic mm-hmm. philosopher who most impressed me when I was young. So I guess that predisposed me towards kind of finding someone like Larell interesting, and obviously Mia Sue's kind of you know, defense. Well, actually, not of realism, but of speculative materialism. I think this right. is the significance of this is often overlooked in that Mia Sue is not a realist or does not see himself as a realist, but as a materialist, which is very different. He explains why. And I now think that it's... Um, that's really important to kind of to emphasize. And with Badu, it was the audacity of claiming that mathematics is ontology. Is, uh, is ontology, you know, yeah. or rather that ontology is mathematics, because he's right. giving ontology to mathematics. That's very important. It's the other way around. He, okay. He's handing over ontology to mathematics and saying, This will tell you, you know, this is what tells you about being well being. I thought that was a really fascinating claim because there's no mystery of the ineffable kind of meaning of being. Or what it means to be, it's a, it's, it is conceptually tractable, and there's a science of being which tells you what is sayable of being, what being. And I, I thought that was that was absolutely. I thought that was you know fantastic, actually, fantastic thing to say. So at the time, you know, this is like twenty or twenty or so years ago, I guess. Yes, Meiru's critique of correlationism seemed to be spelling out or saying or declaring. You know, in the most emphatic possible way, what is um, problematic, or, or he seemed to be kind of challenging a doxa of post-Kantian continental philosophy in a really kind of blunt way. And I thought that that was really an important thing to do. But it was in the wake of that that I started reading, you know, in a way, it was like reading Meiru's challenge to the Kantian legacy that made mm-hmm. me try to, to really understand that legacy, to understand Kant properly, which I did via the work of Wilfred Sellers, who it's only after reading Sellers that I really, I think I properly understood Kant and why Kant, in a way, can respond to some of the charges, you know, made against him by Meiru and Badiou in their different ways. I think this happens a lot in philosophy, is that even the most profound thinkers get trivialized. The most Mm -hmm. profound philosophical insights get reduced to kind of... um, to doxa, to catchphrases, which are repeated and which become cheapened and debased. And if you grow up, you know, so, and if you hear these things kind of repeated all the time, to the point where they're simply kind of taken for granted and no one can be bothered kind of reconstructing the ins and outs of the, uh, the philosophical justification for them, you end up having a, you know, a negative response. They sound, you know, they become annoying. Yeah. And you start. So no, I don't think Kant is kind of you know the root of, of everything that's gone. On the contrary, <laughs> I think Kant is like a decisive turning point. I mm-hmm. think Kant is the philosopher of modernity in the same way in which Aristotle is the philosopher of you know the ancient world. But I think you need to understand them. It takes a long time to understand. I, I study Kant. I read the Critique of Pure Reason as a kind of first year graduate student. I could parrot the phrases like if you 
I knew what Kant said and I could kind of reiterate Kant's claims. So if you set me an exam on Kant, I would probably get it right. I said, this is what you know. <laughs> but I didn't understand it. It took me years to understand it. And I think that, that philosophy is like that because I think philosophical understanding is intensive, not extensive. It takes mm. a long time to actually fathom the depths and the, the ultimate implications and consequences of, of a philosophical proposition, which is why I think there is progress in philosophy, but it's very slow. Mm-hmm. And it involves always kind of going back in order to go forwards, trying to, trying to kind of understand there's usually a reaction against something going on. And then you, you see that the reaction is caused precisely by the kind of calcification of a doctrine and the, the philosophical effort. You need to understand why that reaction is taking place and what really underlies it and why the figure of the, the philosophy that is being kind of rejected may have needs to be reinterpreted, mm-hmm. needs to be properly sounded out in order to, in order to be able to, to make progress. Yeah, sounding out the idols, right? The like the twilight of the idols, and you mentioned Sellers, and I only became familiar with his work initially from your interest in your writing on him, particularly in the Concepts and Objects essay, which you published in the Speculative Realism or the Speculative Turn volume, and you've kind of written about the properly Kantian aspects of Sellers' work, partly in defense against Rorty's, I believe Rorty, as you mentioned, was a student of his, partly in Rorty's kind of, let's just say, calcification of of Sellers or canonization of him. Do you want to say a little bit more about Sellers for the listeners and for myself, why there is something appealing to him, or even about what you refer to as his naturalism? I'm just kind of curious about what you find now in, in this stage of your thinking about Sellers. The first thing I should say is that the person who got me to read Sellers was my friend uh, Damien Beale, who's a philosopher, who um, my friend and a you know, fellow graduate students you know, at Warwick, who, you know, we would often talk. And he, you know, he started off as someone working on, uh, I owe him a lot. I owe him a philosophical debt, which I wish I could repay. I'm afraid he, he died a few years ago, but... Um, he started off as someone working on Heidegger and Husserl and then immersed himself in Neo-Kantianism and then started reading kind of the variegations of Neo-Kantian thought in 20th century philosophy. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he was a, a voracious reader. He read everything and he, he read Sellers and he said, well, you're always banging on about science and naturalism and phenomenology. Mm-hmm. You need to read this guy. You need to read Wilfred Sellers. Which I did. So I, it was because of you know, Damien that I did. And I read um, Empiricism and Philosophy of Mind. And I thought it was remarkable, but like I re- it's very difficult. You know? mm-hmm. And I think I now realize that you know, the first couple of times I read it, I probably understood less than half of it. Although I thought I understood it, but I really didn't. And, uh, and what amazed me was that he was someone who was, um, in a way, defending kind of an uncompromising philosophical naturalism, which took um, natural science very seriously and it didn't try to kind of, uh, co- didn't, didn't resort to an easy gesture of compartmentalization, whereby you say, yeah, natural science just deals with like this, you know, facts or mm-hmm. this kind of trivial stuff, whereas, you know, transcendental philosophy or 
philosophy deals with kind of something that is, you know, with being, you know, right. or the ontological or whatever you want to call it, the stuff that is really important. And sellers didn't seem to kind of um, to engage in these kind of facile maneuvers. And he also seemed to be kind of saying something fundamental about the nature of meaning and how mm-hmm. the experience of meaning is never immediate, but is actually the result of a complex process of historical and cognitive mediation. And once I started to understand that, backtracking, I'd read he was Paul Churchland's thesis advisor. And I'd interesting, read, interesting. I, I was reading a lot of um, philosophical naturalism, principally, you know, the work of Daniel Dennett and uh, Paul and Patricia Churchland. And I knew that Sellers had influenced both Dennett and um, the Churchlands. He advised both Paul and Patricia Churchland. Oh, Pittsburgh. wow. Yeah. In the 60s. So I knew he was in the background of eliminative materials. And then I read him. So then I was able to work out, you know, initially my angle of approach was trying to understand Sellers as this kind of tutelary figure for eliminative materialism. But then I started to realize he was much more and that his mm-hmm. position was actually more sophisticated and kind mm-hmm. of deeper. And once I understood it, he was basically saying that, you know, thoughts and sensations are not kind of um, given. Thoughts and sensations are not ontological givens, but, um, you know, conceptual constructions and our ability to kind of understand our own experiences in terms of the categories of thoughts, of thinking and sensing, was the result of cognitive evolution. And the, you know, the myth of Jones and imprisonment and the philosophy of mind yes. is attempt to explain how we came to invent invent or discover, that's the kind of the controversy, the categories of thinking and sensing and come to be able to conceive of ourselves and our experience of the world in those terms. And this is interesting because Sellers is also a Kantian. So what he's saying, he's naturalizing the faculties of, you know, the understanding and Mm -hmm. sensibility and showing how these transcendental faculties, the way in which they are a priori need not be can be de-reified. In other words, they can be, right. they, they are conditions of experience, but that's not to say that they are ahistorical. It's sellers who made me understand how the transcendental a priori is not metaphysical. It's not metaphysical a priori. It's not like the innate mm-hmm. and that you can, you can reconcile a commitment to transcendentalism with a commitment to, with a broadly naturalistic commitment to the claim that everything we know and think about ourselves is a historical achievement. It was acquired and not innate. So it was sellers who kind of, you know, made me understand this. And yeah, it took me a long time. So I spent about 10 years reading sellers and I'm still reading it. And um, it's been, so he's the one in a way who made me understand that what appealed to me in these French thinkers, you know, mm-hmm. that you may assume, their rationalism, their kind of hostility to kind of, uh, to subjectivism in the broad sense, i.e. the claim that, you know, that subjectivity is kind of somehow prior to and, um, you know, irreducible to the world or, you know, the ontic domain. He was able to kind of explain how, you know, to criticize that, those kind of stances, i.e. Tr- criticize, you know, the transcendental pretensions of phenomenological, of phenomenology and of the, um, in a way, the absolutizing of, experiential immediacy 
which I was always kind of suspicious of, without dismissing subjectivity altogether. In other words, he naturalized subjectivity and he naturalized conceptual form in this incredibly sophisticated way. And this is important because in a way, with Sellers, you get Sellers articulates the rational and the natural. And instead of like simply kind of saying, you know, even in a philosopher like Badiou, you've got conceptual rationality is a cut in being and it's irreducible to, uh, to the natural order, but its irreducibility is abstract and kind of mm-hmm. in a sense on the, I mean, this is simplification, but you could say on dialectical, whereas Sellers articulates, you know, the normative and the natural without yeah, without simply kind of uh, trying to absorb one into the other. That's what makes his philosophy so difficult, but also so rewarding, because it's an incredibly mm-hmm. powerful position. Once I started to understand this, I found it incredibly powerful and compelling. You began this question by asking me about Richard Rorty. So Rorty was never a student of Sellers, but he, was, um, he read Sellers, and mm-hmm. he was a champion of Sellers at a time when Sellers' reputation was in steep decline amongst his kind of, you know, amongst his analytic peers, which is to say in the late 60s, early 70s. Because as Robert Brandon points out in the introduction to his volume from, from Sellers from Empiricism to Expressivism, so Sellers in the 40s and 50s was at the forefront of the then nascent analytic tradition. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, you know, producing these kind of these really important papers that everyone read. And in the 1960s, when he, his debt to Kant became more and more explicit, and when he, he basically kind of started to kind of um, espouse his own Kantianism, you know, science and metaphysics is called variation on Kantian themes, he fell out of favor with, with his peers, and no one could really understand what he was going on about. <laughs> and he became, garnered this reputation for obscurity. Mm-hmm. And as Brandom also suggests, the pivotal shift in 1960s analytic philosophy is from empiricism to rationalism from empiricism to rationalist metaphysics, and Sellers was a Kantian. So like, it was obvious that he, they went from Hume to Leibniz, <laughs> and they left out you know, the Sellers' Kantian alternative, and that's why he was unread, increasingly kind of unread. And, and Rorty wrote a review of Sellers' Science and Metaphysics where he, he called Sellers you know, possibly the most, you know, the most mm. original and inventive systematic philosopher writing in English and drew heavily on Sellers, Rorty draws heavily on Sellers in Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, mm-hmm. published in 79. And in a way, he's single, Rorty is perhaps responsible for keeping Sellers' reputation, keeping Sellers' name alive yeah, yeah. after his death. In a way, when um, Sellers was like a completely marginal figure who was not, who had once been important, but was considered like irrelevant. So Rorty kept Sellers' name alive, but the problem is that Rorty's spin on Sellers' achievement, which is that Sellers is a pragmatist, everyone should be a, just a pragmatist, in a way kind of completely um, disregarded those aspects of Sellers' work, which are challenged this, the, the version of pragmatism that kind of Rorty champions yeah. and that are, you know, can't be kind of absorbed into it. So that's why... I think that um, it's important to challenge, you know, so for instance, the distinction between left and right Salarsianism, which still kind of predominates in the reception of Sellers' work, you're either 
you know, the left Salarsian emphasizes the irreducibility of the normative, and the right mm -hmm. Salarsian embraces Sellers's scientism, his naturalistic scientism. But of course, Sellers wanted to reconcile both. Yeah. You know, Sellers was said, you know, the whole point of Sellers' project is not to be either one or the other, just as Kant is neither a rationalist nor an empiricist. And Rorty, in a way, distorted Sellers' achievement by in a way, kind of constructing this prism through which everyone subsequently interpreted Sellers' work and chose, opted for either one or the other. And I think that that is a really, that prevented people from seeing what was um, unique and uh, profound about Sellers' work. Yeah, it sounds like a double-edged sword that he keeps his name alive, but then, but then splits him, right? Uh, yes, and, exactly, and yes. And it seems like by making him a pragmatist, he makes him a proto-Rordian, right? It's like giving birth to your to your influencer and, and sort of claiming claiming your father figure that you've that you've kind of birthed yourself. Yes. You know, as I've tried to kind of to say in you know, a couple of things I've written, I think this is a problem and I think it's no longer satisfactory mm -hmm. to kind of um I mean there's a there's a there's a political dimension to this because you know that obviously Rorty borrows the left-right. When he says they're left Salarsian, by which he means himself and Robert Brandon. The good, the good Salarsian. The good and the right Salarsians are the are the, the metaphysical backsliders, the reactionaries. Right. And obviously, this is an echo of left and right Hegelianism. Mm -hmm. No one wants to be a right Hegelian defender. <laughs> but the irony is that Rorty's brand of left Salarsianism is just this, I think, very reactionary liberalism. Right. You know? And the liberalism. Rorty defends is, I think, anything but radical and anything but, you know, emancipatory. So, and I actually think that Sellers' philosophy is, is much more radical mm -hmm. than the version of it um, proposed by Rorty. He skews it. Actually, Sellers is a really radical thinker. And I think um, it's Sellers who kind of got me onto Marx. Sellers who really helped me understand what Marx was actually doing in the wake of Hegel and why once you see that rationality is socially instituted, right. Brandom's catchphrase that transcendental constitution is social institution. This is kind of Brandom's version of this kind of uh, the pragmatist kind of uh, appropriation of um, Kantianism. Mm -hmm. Then you realize that discursive practices, the game of giving and asking for reasons, is um, at least supervenes on these um, social forms, okay? Mm -hmm. It is socially enveloped. And I think this is what Marx saw. This is why Marx comes out of Hegel. This allowed me to kind of, um, to realize that the, um, the most radical consequences, the critical consequences of rationalism, which I was interested in, because I was interested in philosophical, in this, this peculiar French rationalism, I mentioned before that in a way the Marxian critique of political economy is in a way the most radical manifestation of this critical rationalism. The understanding that reason is of the world, but of the world not simply because it is a function of bias and prejudice and perceptual habits, but of the world because we are social beings. Mm -hmm. And that the resources of justification and explanation 
depend on our social relations to one another, you know, how we give and, give and ask for reasons. But this also depends that these social relations can't be abstracted from economic relations, from mm-hmm. material economic relations. That's Marx's basic kind of insight. So that's how I got from Sellers to Marx. That's a fascinating pipeline that might be, that's new. I mean, we all eventually, I think, come to Marx and try to, at least in philosophy, at least for me, it was anti-Oedipus, which like your reading of Sellers or some of the other things thinkers you mentioned, the first time I read it, I probably understood 10% of it, but it got me exposed to Marx and Freud through the back door. And I had a, just a very quick question to follow up. And then I think um, I'll let Coop ask something. I was thinking about what you were saying with Sellers and this, and your dissatisfaction with either Husserl or the phenomenologists that start with subjectivity. And you write in your essay on Prometheism and its critics, this notion about a a subjectivism without selfhood. And I know that you end the essay too, bringing up Marx. So is, is Sellers sort of in the background with this notion of Prometheanism? And if you can quickly, because I know we could talk just a whole episode on it, just to fill in the listeners what Prometheanism kind of means for you and, and, and perhaps in distinction from the more mainstream versions of post-humanism? I know that's a lot, mm-hmm. so just, just feel like, feel like uh, tackling any of that. Sellers is in, is in the background because... So Sellers doesn't have a theory of the subject. So Sellers is Kantian in that he says that our subjectivity which is to say our capacity for thinking and feeling, the fact Mm -hmm. that we experience the world as Mm -hmm. creatures that think and feel is itself a cognitive achievement. In other words, Mm -hmm. the fundamental character and nature of our subjectivity is man-made, not God-given. It has a history, okay? Because thinking and feeling, we had to learn to think and feel, we didn't just, we weren't just kind of created with this kind of spontaneous capacity to think and feel. For sellers, though, this means that this capacity is collectively distributed, you know, it's socially instantiated and collectively distributed. And that means that intersubjectivity is the key category, as it is, I think, for these figures like Rorty and Brandon. Now, in that kind of uh, the Prometheanism kind of as you mentioned, it's actually, it's another, there's another concept of subjectivity, which is operative, which is bad use concept of subjectivity as a process, the subject that is without an object, the subject that is not in a way correlative to an object, or that right. doesn't emerge as the, you know, in relation to an object is, uh, you know, the subject of truth in bad you, right. which is a process, you know, which it's a process, which is, impersonal, collective, and anonymous, and individuals are the support of this subjective process, which constructs a truth. And that was the, you know, the, the concept of subjectivity that I, I continued to be, you know, I was and continue to, to be kind of fascinated by, but I couldn't see how to connect it to the kind of, how to connect this kind of bad you and the kind of subjectivity with the, um, you know, the Sellersian account, because I didn't know how to connect truth and knowledge. Okay. okay. So Sellers explains to you how we know things about ourselves and the world 
And we know things about ourselves and the world through our conceptual capacities, which gradually develop over time. And Badiou says that truth is a break with the conceptual, with the reigning conceptual order. It's a, right. you know, it's a subtraction from knowledge, and subjectivity only arises, you know, as this break from knowledge, you know, from the order of knowledge. And in a way, what I've been trying to do is kind of put those two halves, you know, of subjectivity together to articulate the cognitive and the uh, alethic dimensions of subjectivity. And um, again, Marx, I think, is a thinker who allows one, provides the resources to do this, because I think that, uh, in a way, Marx's account of, Marx's account of the primacy of social relations of production mm -hmm. and his analysis of social forms underwrites this Kantian naturalism, this account of, you know, in other words, any account of intersubjectivity must factor in the way in which the intersubjective dimension is constrained and shaped in some way by social relations which are not transparent to consciousness, which can't simply be, can't be intuited or mm -hmm. can't be uncovered through transcendental reflection. And this is also why I think in the bad union account, the break between truth and knowledge or the way in which, you know, subjectivation occurs as a break with ordinary ways of thinking and, and feeling hinges on this, this theory of the event, which I actually find, you know, I always had problems with. I, I always yeah. found it kind of unconvincing or, you know, I mean, fascinating, but kind of really unconvincing. And I started to see how... Marx is a thinker. I mean, what's the point of Prometheanism? Is that if there is no way that the world is supposed to be, and if all the evidence is that the world is at best indifferent, at worst positively hostile to yeah. our desires and interests, then the response is the world must be changed. The world must be remade. And Prometheanism is simply to say that there is no reason to accept, once you realize that there is no reason to accept that the world has to be the way it is, that nothing, you know, that everything we know and experience in the world is to a greater or lesser extent made and not given, then, you know, the onus is on us to, if we are dissatisfied mm -hmm. or unhappy with the world, then we should remake it from the ground up. And Marx is a great Promethean thinker, a mm -hmm. great Kantian, post-Kantian Promethean thinker. You know, in the introduction to his doctoral dissertation, he calls, you know, Prometheus the only patron saint and martyr of the philosophical canon or philosophy. So Marx explains how the world in which we find ourselves, the world that we inhabit and which punishes us and frustrates us at every turn is the world that we have made collectively over generations. Right. And if we made it, we can unmake it. And those who tell you that we can't or that it has to be this way or there's nothing we can do with it, you're about it, are liars, basically. Mm -hmm. 
they have a vested interest in right. you know, making sure that things don't change and things carry on the way they have been. So Marx says, no, here is, and here, so Marx said, here is how the world is made. Here is how we construct the world unknowingly, without knowing, re- realizing what we're doing through our everyday social practices. And once we understand this, we realize that in our everyday practices of buying and selling commodities, we weave this web of relations which end up dominating and disempowering us and preventing us from doing what we want to do or should want to do. And that web is called capital. And Marx gives you, he, he lays out the kind of the structure of the web and makes its dissolution and transformation both at least cognitively feasible mm-hmm. and the problem then is, is the practical implementation it's like exactly how we know what has to be abolished but we don't know exactly how to do it and the way in which Marx brings together the kind of as I said like the Salarsian epistemic and, and kind of bad you and alethic dimensions of subjectivity is because in some sense everything we know about ourselves in the world is depends upon these social relations and you know the, the social structures that we, we practically generated and the way in which to break with the order of knowledge is not by awaiting an event mm-hmm. but by dismantling the social forms which constrain the horizon of cognitive and practical possibility and that's what revolution is that's what communism is the name for this for the abolition of the uh, the harnesses and um, and blinkers which prevent us from seeing and doing what we would otherwise be capable of seeing and doing and in a way that's why marx is the answer to Nietzsche. When Nietzsche says mm-hmm. that nihilism is about, you know, the sponge that you know, wipes away the horizon, well, Marx explains how the horizon was constructed. Mm-hmm. And he says that once we realize we can constructed it, we can not only wipe it away, but instead of replacing it with another kind of prefabricated horizon, we can really start investigating. We can open up a horizonless prospect of possibility. And the name of that, I think, is communism. And communism is the real movement to abolish the present state of things, right? Yes. Yes. Shifting gears a little bit, Ray, I was curious, it seems to be, and this could be also just a result of, I guess, siloed internet subgroups or what have you, but it seems like there's a a kind of resurgence of, of Hegel in particular, but German idealism broadly. And I think you know, there is some evidence for this in the way that Reza Negrostani's work has moved. But I think for me, even more incongruous, it's kind of hard to see someone like uh, Ian Hamilton Grant going from doing translating Leotard's libidinal economy, Baudrillard's symbolic exchange in death, and then going back to Schelling. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you have any opinions on kind of this trend or anything to comment related to that at all. But if you do, I'd love to hear it. Yes. I mean, look. You know, Reza and Ian, I probably kind of, I was shaped by the, you know, the Nietzscheanism. What is French, you know, thought, French post-structuralism? It's basically kind of variation on Nietzschean themes, okay? Mm. I mean, that's a bit of a, it's reductive, but it's not that reductive. No, it's not, yeah. So, 
And of course, Nietzsche, as read by the French, is the great anti-Hegelian. He's the great mm-hmm. alternative to, again, to Hegel. So like, like everyone else, when I entered, um, I thought, although ironically, as a, you know, when I was a first read philosophy, I mean, I was fascinated. I read bits of, I read a book about Hegel, which I loved. I read William Stace's The Philosophy of Hegel when I was mm. like 14 or 15. And um, it's like a 1920s work on expounding Hegel's system. And I thought it was great. I loved it. But by the time I entered into my graduate studies, you know, I thought Hegel was bad. You know, everyone knew <laughs> yeah. why Hegel was bad. And in a way, that prevented me. Although I was, I was interested in Marx, in a way, the problem was I was prevented or came from reading a lot of Marx literature because, you know, there was a problem in Marx and that was his debt to Hegel. This was kind of an obstacle to kind of engaging with Marx. So actually, Badiou was the first thinker I read who made me rethink this yeah. kind of uh, ingrained anti-Hegelianism, which mm-hmm. I and many others of my generation had simply kind of absorbed, mm-hmm. you know, because all these French guys told you what was what was wrong with Hegel, why he's this bad totalitarian thinker. It took me a long time to kind of... So Badiou was the first thinker who made me rethink that because he's incredibly... You know, Hegel is a great kind of tutelary, tutelary figure for him. Also, taking courses with Stephen Hulgate. Stephen Hulgate was my teacher, and um, I studied Hegel's Science of Logic with him. And that already kind of... It was very difficult... To kind of to simply repeat the platitudes about bad Hegel. So Hegel who tells you, no, this is actually how it works. This is what's going on. It's not so easy to say like Hegel's a thinker of unity, identity. And then when you're given evidence, that's actually much more complicated and interesting than this. So, so the seeds were planted in my kind of, I guess, my graduate years. And then gradually, Sellers really made me rethink my attitude to Kant mm-hmm. and, and then really pushed me back towards Hegel. I suddenly thought that, you know, what Sellers was saying, because Sellers is a, is a kind of post-Kantian, mm-hmm. you know, he's trying to kind of overcome some of these. Again, he's kind of, he's trying to kind of naturalize and historicize these Kantian transcendental structures or make them move, get them moving and make them kind of dialectically kind of interdependent. And that's already pushing you towards Hegel. So, so I've also become much more interested in Hegel. And um, yes, yeah, so just to rethink, you know, I like Hegel as a thinker of contradiction, as a thinker of conflict, not as a thinker of like resolution and harmony, but as a thinker of confrontation and contradiction in a really charged sense. And if you read Hegel, if you read he- the text that Hegel composed, i.e. the phenomenology and the science of logic, it's, what's remarkable is how crazy and unpredictable they are. It's not like this, they're not seamlessly right. unfolding. People had to kind of smooth it out and to make it seem like this kind of conveyor belt, this dialectical <laughs> right, conveyor right. belt, to make it, to make it, Digestible. Digestible. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise it's it's just fucking crazy. Like, yeah. You know? And, it, and the, it just, there are bits in the uh, phenomenology where like it's just the text is exploding in every direction. Yeah. yeah. And there's these amazing reversal. And the claim that Hegel always knows where he's going and has planned it all out in advance <laughs> is like, no, he clearly, when he was writing this, like he didn't know where he's, he's just, this stuff is kind of unfolding 
the concepts are unfolding and exploding and ramifying in these ways that he's only partly in control of and being led along by. And that's, I think, fascinating. And I think that people have rediscovered that, or I hope that people are kind of beginning to rediscover this aspect of, of Hegel. So Reza, yes. So Reza's work um, is uh, putting together kind of, you know, the project of artificial general intelligence with these insights from kind of German idealism. And Ian, well, Ian started reading Schelling way back. And he tells me he was just bored of the philosophy he'd been kind of, you know, reading, the kind of the French stuff he'd been reading. And he, he walked into a bookshop and kind of spontaneously kind of bought Schelling's um, Freedom Essay and started Amazing. to read it. Amazing. And that was it, you know, kind of inflamed his philosophical imagination, I think. Yeah. I have heard great things about Schelling's work, or at least as far as it being it, the, kind of the similar to Hegel in terms of it's it's kind of exploding in these different directions. Mm -hmm. And yes, yes, these are not tidy thinkers. Right. Um, right. Schelling, even less than you know, kind of a joke in Schelling. How many you know how many systems can you find in Schelling? You know, <laughs> you know several uh, dozen within every within a six month period. You can kind of you know. Um, <laughs> And dozens of them, but yes, he's he's a very kind of an incredibly rich and um, you know profound thinker, mm -hmm. and um, and I think that people, I guess, very simply, is that um, you know to to go back to the kind of the beginning of the conversation is that you know everyone should read Nietzsche, everyone mm -hmm. should read Nietzsche, but then you need to kind of get out of it, you know. Yeah. I think that he does. <laughs> constrain your your philosophical horizons actually for, for you know although he's an amazing he's an amazing writer and he kind of in a way he liberates well the, the problem with Nietzsche is that you don't know what he's fighting against so he'll yeah. tell you like what's wrong with Plato and what's wrong with Kant mm -hmm. and his predecessors but uh, that, that's dangerous if it prevents you from reading with you know these thinkers and seeing actually no this is not um, you know he has an agenda which is culturally and historically specific i mean yeah i don't want to get into the ins and outs of in, you know, nietzsche's politics but like the conditions under which nietzsche emerges as this kind of um, master thinker for yeah. a generation are historically specific and mm -hmm. um, and there's a reason why he captures our imagination and i think you need to be aware of that but i think it's very dangerous when nietzsche becomes a worldview and actually philosophy is not a worldview when you start filtering it as you know as i said when you start filtering everything through this your favorite philosopher then that's just you're not doing philosophy anymore right you're just interpreting using a kind of a preformed grid yeah so i think that that's maybe that's why well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people, I mean, Reza and Ian are friends of mine. I think, yeah, I think their interest in these figures is, I think we had a similar kind of trajectory. You discover that you become dissatisfied with the solutions or the responses that you had to think. You, you discover that there's something about a line you're taking on an issue that just doesn't work. Or that's not kind of, you know, right. really doesn't hold up to prolonged scrutiny. It may hold up if you don't poke it too, too strongly, but like if you really test it, you see it just doesn't stand up. Yeah. I would like to flag a thinker. You don't have to respond to this, but just really briefly, I wanted to insert this. Uh, so personally, my one of my 
figures in within German idealism that I like to read would be Max Stirner, who I think mm-hmm. is an interesting figure in the way that sort of bridges this gap between a Nietzscheanism and a and a Hegelian in the way that he is very, you know, his his logic is very Hegelian in his critique of of the phenomenology in the unique in its property. But he's a very interesting figure, you know. I think the stuff with Schelling and the eye and so forth has some relationship to Stirner's The Creative Nothing, but I, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, no, he is. Um, Stirner's a figure like, I don't know well at all, but I read Jacob Blumenfeld's recent book on him, which is a great little book, and which hopefully will get you know, more people reading. Stirner, I had him on the show, figures, Oh, great. Okay, great. So I'm yeah. glad. All these figures, I mean, this is the other thing is that, you know, you think that these French, you know, these 60s French thinkers are the most radical and brilliant and inventive thinkers. And they, they were, they were brilliant. They were all brilliant. You know, I'm not minimizing their, <laughs> their brilliance. But then, you know, you read this stuff, this post-Hegelian stuff, and you see it's incredible. Like, these guys were equally brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. and they were just as kind of imaginative. And they were trying to they were also trying to kind of think beyond the kind of, you know, the horizon of established philosophical possibility. And uh, the stakes were immense. Feuerbach is a thinker, like, I discovered, and, you know, he's really extraordinary. So all these thinkers were, like, really, um, you know, remarkable. And they have, you know, they're responding to Kant and Hegel, who are, like, these titans, Mm-hmm. And they're doing so in these incredibly inventive ways. And you start to realize that in philosophy, 200 years in philosophy is like, you know, a day. It's really nothing. <laughs> Philosophical temporality is not like, and we're still dealing with the problems that these thinkers were dealing with. And that, you know, you can draw a line. You, you realize that these French thinkers are still kind of working out the consequences and the ramifications of problems mm-hmm. that were formulated in the immediate aftermath of German idealism. And it's a mistake to think that philosophical temporality is not synchronized with right. you know, empirical, historical chronology. So 200 years in philosophy is nothing. You know? And um, this is why these, these German thinkers are still our contemporaries. They're not old hats you know we haven't kind of simply advanced beyond them in this kind of um straightforward chronological thing i do like that i mean you can see that in obviously deleuze is someone that i think of when we think about anti-hegelianism because he does take up nietzsche at least and you know as you kind of point out controversially perhaps so this his book nietzsche and philosophy is controversial at least to one extent in if not his reading of will to power and eternal return then in making him the key figure in the anti-Hegelian front. If we take that out of context of the time in which he's writing, at least Deleuze, if we take him biographically seriously, he's kind of saying how his generation was, what you had on the menu was was Husserl, Heidegger, and Hegel. And so there is a kind of, you have to think about the situation that Nietzsche was an antidote to their time, or to at least to his upbringing, and I assume you can include Foucault and Lyotard and Baudrillard and these other thinkers, maybe not Baudrillard, he was off doing a little bit something different, but, and that's why your point about temporality and not being synchronized, and it's also highly contextualized, that it makes sense why it is, it is important to see, and it does perk 
people's ears up when someone like Grant is writing on Schelling as a contemporary thinker in his own right, or Reza going back to Hegel. You know, that's I think that's that's very poignant what you just said. I realize it can sound, I mean, I can sound like I'm contradicting myself because I'm, earlier I was insisting that, you know, philosophy is historically kind of, you know, embedded. And now I'm, I'm saying that, you know, philosophical temporality is kind of, is not simply kind of synchronic with kind of um, history events. But I think both things are true. The, the claim mm-hmm. that philosophy is always of its time, is, is kind of, you know, generated by, it, it arises, what a philosopher says and thinks is kind of determined in a complicated way by the social historical circumstances. But at the same time, those circumstances may be transformed at a rate and at a pace, which isn't kind of synchronic with the transformation of the problem. So in a way, the world in right. which there's a, in, in one sense, there's a profound difference between our reality, our social historical reality in the early 21st century and Germany in the 1840s and 50s. You know? Right. And that's true, but there's also a sense in which there's some things that haven't changed. And I think that this, the, the way in which, you know, the historical change is multidimensional. It's not kind of unilinear. In a way, the way in which historical time unfolds, it unfolds in these on different strata and not always at the same kind of pace. And that's why, you know, a philosopher writing 200 years ago, whose thought is responding to the circumstances of 200 years ago, can still have something, even if the, the historical circumstances in which he was writing have resolved themselves, his thinking may not, is not necessarily resolved into something kind of successive. Mm -hmm. So that's the sense in which, you know, philosophy is both, is always of its time, but the time it's of is multi-layered, you know, the depth to it and the implications of, um, you know, what unfolds from a historical moment is unfolds in this kind of um, at different rates, at different speeds. I really like that. And I was going to be Nietzschean for a second and say you could invoke the untimely, but <laughs> we've already warned our listeners to let's keep the Nietzsche down. You know, a little Nietzsche is, is, a, is enough for now. Everything you said was puts all of this in light. And, and the follow-up we had, or the follow-up I was thinking of, because Baudrillard does in the first chapter of Symbolic Exchange of Death, he mobilizes, you know, the master and slave dialectic to say that what sort of um, happens in that relationship is the master. It's not necessarily, he kind of inverts it, right? It's not that the master holds the power of death over the slave, but he, he has the power to like allow living and there, and therefore that's how the subjugation occurs. And we were thinking about this in terms of your essay on the human and your own reflections on Hegel. That made me also think about in the back of my mind in reading Baudrillard, I always have the sense in which, perhaps differently than Nietzsche's own confrontation with nihilism, Baudrillard has, cultivates a kind of nihilism that perhaps takes it to the consequences that he's trying to draw out in its extremes. And I just wanted to perhaps get you to speak a moment about your taking seriously of nihilism in, I mean, you phrase it so well in the beginning of Nile Unbound, this notion 
philosophy can be too quick to to reconcile thinking and and life, right? You you mentioned the this question of the hostility of life, and perhaps this was also part of what you were thinking of when you were speaking of Hegel and this kind of notion of of tearing with the negative and this explosive notion. Do you want to say anything about your understanding of nihilism or what it means meant for you, and and if it perhaps still does have something left for you to to sort of extrapolate and, and if it has any any bearing on your current or future work? I'll try to answer by, in a way, responding to the final part of your question first. Yeah. And um, I would say yes. I mean, I got to where I am now, which is to say working on Marx, you know, Marx as being, I think, this, in a way, the most radical kind of successor to Kant and Hegel by, through my earlier kind of, you know, work on, on nihilism. And it's simply because, you know, what spurred that work was that um, nihilism is kind of both banal, something that easily becomes banal and kind of that everyone thinks is, um, can be kind of, you know, overcome. But there's something about it that refuses, or at least there was something about it for me that kind of couldn't be, that represented a kind of, um, a point of indigestibility or something that couldn't be kind of simply circumvented or kind of traversed. And this is that, you know, the, the accommodations, the philosophical accommodations that we try to make with the world can sound really like self-deceptions. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they're pretending, pretending that the world Nihilism is similar, you know, that the world is not okay, you know, that there's something profoundly wrong mm-hmm. with um, being alive and with life as we know it. And that these, you know, these philosophical mitigations or consolations mm-hmm. are just kind of sophistry and uh, delusion. And that's, and I think that that is a, so, Part of this, it's, it's in a way, it's my um, my you know, kind of mistrust of, I guess, um, of reconciliation, of easy reconciliation, or of accommodation, that made me interested in nihilism. But then, of course, I also realized that kind of nihilism can also turn into comfort blankets. You know, you right? Can, there's a there's a brand of nihilism which becomes also a nice. A nice comfy hospital bed um, <laughs> where you don't have to kind of you know, uh, wait, you know it's a, it's a kind of facile resignation, right? But in a way, but where you kind of you protect yourself, you protect yourself from you know the uh, the uh, the world's power to hurt and humiliate. So everything I've done, Neil Unbound is a book about despair, yeah, and that's despair is an emotion. It's a very simple emotion which I think most people experience and i think that despair is not something to be summarily dismissed i think that there are there are objective grounds for despair and in a way lots of the kind of these philosophical antidotes to despair can sound really facile and hollow and i tend to kind of to take it seriously but then also to kind of work through it without doing something Without you know to to find a, a non Nietzschean alternative to, to find yeah. an alternative to nihilistic despair that wouldn't simply be the love of fate, yes, know, the love yeah. of fate, and in a way that's why fatalism, the, 
the book I'm writing now is about, you know, the working title is Fatelessness. It's about mm. thinking the absence of fatality, you know, the absence of fate, um, without affirming, without simply kind of affirming freedom as a positive condition. I think this is what Marx is trying to work, this is what Marx is a thinker of emancipation, because he's trying to think freedom as something that we have not yet achieved. Yeah. Freedom is something that can only be negatively envisaged as what is not. Freedom is not, it has to be made to be. And that's, that's the kind of uh, the challenge. And that's what I think the overcoming of nihilism kind of entails. So I think there is a kind of a trajectory from this, art, this stuff I wrote a long time ago now, to stuff I'm trying to do now. And the relationship to Baudrillard, that's a long time, actually. You know, I read Baudrillard in my 20s. I read a lot of his stuff. Mm -hmm. And I found it very kind of seductive. And the prose was kind of, you know, fascinating. Yes. And actually, I like that. I like that in the um, simulations where Baudrillard says, I am a nihilist. Mm -hmm. I see, except I like that. I, re I remember like that. You know, it's had this uh, really bracing kind of uh, rhetorical effect. Like I liked, I liked his really, this disenchanted, there's no stuff about desire, no stuff about affirmation. It's just like it's really kind of you know, very <laughs> <Yeah>. hard. <laughs> kind yeah. of glacial kind of um, outlook on this uh, monstrous commodity world. But um, I'd have to say, I can't really remember. I mean, I mean, if I revisited it, I'm not sure I would kind of um, agree with, you know, the diagnosis. Now, and actually, you mentioned, you, you pair him with, with Lyotard. Baudrillard and Lyotard are ex-Marxists. They were Marxists who, who kind of turned to, well, Lyotard switched, you know, to Nietzsche, you know. Yeah. And um, they see kind of, um, you know, that the Marxian Revolutionary Project has failed and right. it's no longer, that option is no longer available. So we have to kind of, you know, reconcile ourselves to the terminal absence of the prospect of, of liberation. I think they're wrong. I think, yeah. again, that, that's kind of myopia, historical myopia. They took a peculiar historical predicament to be this kind of eternal, uncircumventable kind of condition. And actually, they're an example of the way in which there's a kind of dialectically radicalism so quickly flips over into kind of complacency. And, you know, right. so like Leotard, and again, like I read those books, Libinal Economy and Dispositif um, Pulsionnel, like, you know, and... Uh, loved them at the, at the time. But you have to remember, if you see where, where Lyotard ends up, it's not in a radical place where he ends up, you know? No. He ends up with Kant and liberal democracy. And St. Um, Augustine at the end. And yeah. St. Augustine, at the, you know, <laughs> and he's a beautiful writer, but like it yes. should be voting for Giscard d'Estaing in 1974 as an anti-communist. So these thinkers really painted themselves into corners uh -huh. yeah. where they're... You know, there's a kind of gestural not radicalism, which flips over into concern. You know, which flips over into something very conservative. And like you can see, and I think those it's apparent in, in the the positions that these thinkers got themselves into. And it's it's a less it's a salutary lesson. That's why I think you know it's a reason to study their work. Yeah. And um, they were trying to think through these these political 
and philosophical deadlocks, and they were trying to do so kind of bravely, you know, and audaciously. But um, what they took to be a kind of a radical alternative ends up being something that is, again, becomes something that's part of the status quo, something, a default, you know, kind of a, a default option that is, um, becomes all too palatable and, and kind of, that loses its kind of, you know, the veneer of, of provocation and radicalism. And in a way, that's a problem with like any radical gesture is immediately neutralized because it's so tied to a specific time and place. Right. What seems super radical in 1974, years later, like you see, like it's, you know, it's not at all radical. But. Quickly, and, and I know that, Coop, I, I want you to ask your, your next question <laughs> and we can circle back, but, and we can start to, to wrap up too. We've had you for, for two yeah. hours. And uh, anyway, with Leotar in liberal economy, you, you see throughout the work, and he's even actually very critical of Augustine in the, which is ironic because he ends up with him, but he repeats throughout the work is like, we can't do like, that has to be cordoned off as nihilistic. Whereas even in 76, in a uh, symbolic exchange of death, Baudrillard hasn't yet said I'm a nihilist. He, he kind of is still considering nihilism not to be what he's after, which is why sometimes I think in that work, he has the feeling of nostalgia, even when he's saying, you know, we can't go back. It still kind of feel like he he's not in the simple positive Rousseauian. We need to go back to symbolic exchange uh, in primitive societies or whatever. But it still feels like there's this yearning, and that's also not the kind of answer that Prometheanism or or taking nihilism seriously can offer as a solution. This this sort of yearning for the past, because that again is is as you were saying, that's a palliative. That's just another consolation to merely kind of fantasize rather than sort of plug that desire not to use a <laughs> word that you may not want to use but you know what i'm saying to, yeah, to, yeah. Plug that, to plug that into something that that could still be viable yes yes i think that's that's right and i know that cooper wants to ask you about about dune because he he felt something in your discussion of prometheanism in the work of frank herbert have you in, ever engaged with the series by chance? It's a very, I think it's a very interesting kind of, at least narratively examines a lot of these kind of bigger movements and maybe the Marcuse or Dorno piece, I think more directly deals with this kind of question about, because in Dune, you have this sort of messianic figure, right? That is sort of this being that has access to all ancestral memories, you know, from the beginning of humanity. And so they have this basically access to all of human history so they can sort of, and they're also prescient. So they have the ability to see what the potential future outcomes are of humanity and, and so forth. So I thought it was relatively interesting there. And then like, as the books, as the series progress, you have this sort of merging of the human with the animal world and sort of collapsing, try, trying to collapse down this distinction between culture and nature into this, you know, kind of, I almost say like a, it's almost Hegelian in its approach via the the God Emperor. And I don't know if any of this even is making, is registering at all, but so please stop me if, if you have no familiarity at all. I've never read the books and I haven't seen the series. I'm not sure, is this, um, I, I've seen David Lynch's film right. mm -hmm. from uh, the 1984, I think, yep. which yes. I really liked. I think it's brilliant. I haven't seen the new one. All those things are 
kind of philosophically kind of you know um, resonance, you know. And I think they're yeah, they're clearly. I mean, in terms of the kind of uh, you know the culture and nature thing, I think in Marx the point is not to recover this kind of uh, pre-Lapsarian harmony, this right, right. Know, this this Edenic state where culture you know where the state of nature. But um, in a way to kind of um, to dissolve, you know, the artificial, you know, the, mm. the human made boundaries between what we call culture and what we call nature mm-hmm. and thereby transform both in the process, which means that it's a process because neither is fixed. Okay? Neither culture nor nature is like fixed as a kind of a, as a determinate result. So the remaking or in a way, Prometheism would be kind of, you know, humanity actively contributing to the creation of the universe, okay? Like, you know, actively making the world and making it not just in, uh, not on an imaginary level, but in a kind of a real practical and cognitive way. And science, that's, I think that's a science fiction is often treats of that, uh, that topic. And yeah, if I knew if if I knew Frank Herbert's books, I'd, I'd be able to say more. I've just never, yeah, I'm afraid I've never gotten around to kind of uh, to reading them. Can you tell me more about the, the series? Where where was it shown? I was speaking specifically to the books because the books, oh, the books, okay. The only only really the first one or two books have ever been adapted to the screen. But where Herbert really gets interesting in terms of his philosophy angle is in the third and fourth books, which would be. Mm. Children of Dune and then God Emperor of Dune. And this is him and his most philosophically resonant. And I want to say, you know, Herbert was, he was an American. He was raised Catholic, became a Buddhist later in his life. But the time, his time and place was effectively at the sort of in the sixties, like, you know, the sexual revolution was occurring, you know, the conflicts in the Middle East over oil and so forth. So this is like the landscape in which his writing developed, which I think is heavily influenced by writers like Freud and mm-hmm. uh, and Marx and kind of this very historical materialist approach to how human culture develops that I think really sets it in a dist- as in distinct opposition to most of the kind of more liberal oriented ontological way that most science fiction at least in the US is is addressed sure except the category of god emperor would i mean yeah it's like uh... I mean, I wouldn't want a society where there was a god emperor. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, that, that would make me uncomfortable. Um, here's the despotic here's, regime. Here's yeah. the interesting angle on the god emperor. Okay. So the whole facility of the god emperor is basically to prepare humanity. So it's like this the idea is this extreme amount of repression so that humanity can kind of burst forth in this and scatter and populate the universe instead of becoming this sort of steady state dying culture without its you know mm. I mean, like if mm. humanity is sort of concentrated within certain angles of the universe they're more susceptible to the end right to the end of time as you talk about a little bit so that's kind of his approach is this extreme repression it's almost and it's it even auto is almost like this vitalist revolution mm. i would call it in a sense in the way that it's kind of like this nietzschean very darwinian you know sort of only the strong survive sort of very hard uh, stark vision of Darwinism or evolution as a process as applied mm-hmm. to humanity. Well, what I liked about what you just said, the way before throwing it to you, Ray, was what comes out now in your description, because I haven't read the books either. And Coop's, he's trying to get me to read them. And I, I'm going to have to consent at some point. But 
this tension between progress and the antinomy of progress, right? As you write about with Marcuse and Adorno, is this going to be uh, featured in your your book on fatelessness? And do you uh, see do you see some of the ideas of this God Emperor preparing the human for scattering throughout the universe? Do you see how that kind of relates a little bit to uh, to the crux of your isolating? I don't know if I thought of them as paradoxes, but obviously antinomies and paradoxes aren't the same. Do you want to just say a little bit about that piece on Marcuse and, and Adorno? Yeah, that piece focuses on an antimony of progress that each thinker identifies, both you know Adorno and Marcuse kind of identify, but, but from which they draw different consequences. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the antinomy is that on the one hand, well, it's, it's actually, you know, Marcuse, you know, maybe kind of makes it easier to explain because he distinguishes between two kind of dimensions of progress, qualitative, quantitative, technical progress, progress right. and kind of the domination of nature, the, you know, technology, Etc. And progress in a kind of a normative, political, emancipatory progress. You know, kind of the uh, the overcoming of um, of oppression and domination. So that the antimony is stated by Adorno and Horkheimer in um, Dialectic of Enlightenment is that we free ourselves from nature. You know, we we overcome you know nature's domination of us as a weak, frail animal species by dominating it. But the point Adorno and Horkheimer make is that in dominating nature and freeing ourselves from nature's kind of deadly grip upon us, we simply, you know, we reiterate nature. We kind of, we still channel nature because this domination is itself a natural kind of compulsion so that we kind of, we remain, we enslave ourselves to nature, even as we try to free ourselves from it. So. The, uh, the paradox is that on the one hand, we've achieved a kind of, you know, we've progressed far beyond our original kind of um, dependence and vulnerability to nature. You know, our hominid ancestors were vulnerable to the caprices of nature in ways in which we are, we are not. And yet, ironically, like, you know, all of this... Uh, this vast technological armature that we develop to protect ourselves from nature ends up kind of you know enslaving us and dominating right. us and preventing us from and it, it creates a second nature. This is also what Marx is talking about. The capital is the second nature that forces us to serve it instead of it being subservient to our ends. So all this to say that the um, you can't have one without the other. So you can't. Have you know human beings have to free themselves from nature? They have to free themselves from their complete kind of the subservience to nature in order to kind of to live um, human life. So that you know we have to be able to kind of cure diseases and you know minimize infant mortality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the more we're able to do this, you know, the resources through which we do this, end up enslaving us in a different way and end up making us dependent once again. Right. So that's the, uh, the antimony. And both Adorno and Horkheimer have different kind of proposals to resolve it. With Adorno, it's by, I mean, it's complicated. I mean, I'm not sure I can do it justice off the top of my head like this, but um, it's if you, um, I guess you can't, 
you can't dominate domination. Right. So you have to, um, as he puts it, there's like, you know, remember. There's a self-negation that progress involves and the you kind of problematize his, his answer or that his solution isn't quite satisfactory, even if he's inching toward it, right? This this proposal yes. of, of resistance that um, you're not quite sure how we get there, but you can see the glimpses of it. Yes, it's like, in a way, what Adorno says that, in a way, progress would be the resistance to compulsive progress. Okay? Right. Progress would be achieved when we're not compelled to mm-hmm. keep dominating both inner and outer nature to stay alive. Because really, the fact that we we are compelled to dominate in order to, to survive, uh, the fact that you know we're still compelled to preserve ourselves shows that we are not free. And capitalist society compels kind of you know self-domination and the domination of others as a as a condition of self-preservation. You can't exist as a human in a capitalist society without either you know dominating or being dominated okay mm-hmm. so that's the uh, and in a way so the the resistance to the compulsion to dominate or to be dominated would be a, a progress but obviously this this could only be kind of socially collectively socially achieved and marcuse marcuse's argument is also dialectical he says that the there comes a point at which the progress in the technological kind of means of repression renders, you know, diminishes the amount of socially necessary repression. Right. So there comes a point where, where kind of um, the gap between what he calls or the, the ratio of the surplus to necessary repression is, you know, cancelled or dissolved. Right. And you know where we can you know live without being compelled compelled to to repress. So you have you know so in a way it's like you know kind of um, repression itself is sublimated, right? You know, kind of determinately negated. And interestingly enough, through, through through technological advances and through kind of automation. So Marcuse, you know, in Eros, so this argument is kind of first sketched in Eros and civilization, but then you know repeated in the nineteen sixties. But he's the first kind of um, what is now known as kind of accelerationism, the, the mm-hmm. claim that kind of capitalism somehow generates the conditions for its own overcoming is first broached by Marcuse, which is not surprising because it's a Hegelian right. crisis and Marcuse is, is a Hegelian. Of course, it's not, it's very different. Well, Deleuze and Guattari cite Marcuse and I think there is a yeah. kind of you know, influence in, in certain mm-hmm. anti-Oedipus. Yeah. So, um, yes, so that's the... Uh, the antimony of progress. And I think the crucial claim, and Adorno makes this claim, is that you know, progress, it's in a way the assumption that progress has been achieved, or the confidence that we now have, that humanity as we now know it, is definitely provides some kind of you know um, yardstick of accomplishments and that we are a template for in a future human development is precisely the kind of the regressive mm. kind of delusion. So it's very interesting because I think it's a dialectical engagement with the problem. of Instead of saying progress is all good, if you're kind of a, a liberal progressivist who thinks that you know, things have just been getting better and better, you know, 
right pinker, pinker like you know things have just yeah. been getting be- better and better um and they're just these once we get, they're just these kind of uh resistances these remaining resistances which are kind of regressive tendencies that must be kind of the gesture of confidently demarcating progression from regression is itself regressive mm. on this account. Mm-hmm. but the wager that there's something in um you know, we're recognizing the regressiveness of what we have called progress up until now would be the first step, the first progressive step, we, the first step towards liberation, towards kind of uh, achieving liberation, which is the liberation from compulsive self-preservation. And the, the interesting corollary to this, which is, I think, sometimes overlooked, or at least, you know, I only noticed recently, is that there's also in Adorno and Marcuse, you are both influenced by Freud, is that the ego, what we ordinarily call the self, is a defense formation, it's an instrument of self-preservation. Right. So like freedom, individual liberation, individual and collective liberation would involve the kind of the solution of the ego as this kind of defense mechanism. In a way, it's, it's both a kind of, uh, it's, the ego is both a weapon of aggression and a, and a mm-hmm. defense mechanism which is perpetuated by social antagonism and by conditions of the compulsion to self-preservation because we're constantly kind of besieged and um, you know, threatened. And it would become unnecessary under communism that you, if you dissolve the conditions that make um, compulsive self-preservation necessary, then the ego, as we know it, that psychic formation would be redundant. Yes. Which doesn't mean, and it's interesting because it doesn't mean like you merge with the cosmos or like it's not. Right, right. It means that the way it, it would mean like a fundamental kind of reconfiguration of experience and of the, the relationship between self and other. You know? mm-hmm. And both Marcuse has very interesting things to say about this. Adorno too, although he's less confident. That he's a little pessimistic. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, which is good. Which is good. Yes. That's a, that's an interesting kind of you know implication of this of this view. When I was reading your paper on Marcuse and, and Adorno and this antinomy of progress, it made me think of one of my favorite novels, which is Brave New World, and how Huxley kind of imagines this fantastical future society that wherein some of the conditions, particularly of the ego that you're talking about, are also redundant, and instead of kind of merging with the cosmos through the means of the magic drug soma there are these you know ritual communions with with other bodies you know it's everyone belongs to everyone else and of course at the end of the novel the horror of engineering the society is revealed by one of the world by mustafa mond he's a he kind of runs new london and he's explaining not only to john the savage but really to the readers that in earlier iterations of this perfect society, of, of this utopia, this brave new world, the engineers tried to make it so that there was nothing but free time and there was no, uh, there was no sort of labor requirements whatsoever. And, you know, Huxley cynically or humorously, satirically kind of says that this didn't work. People weren't happy. And I, w- I only was re- reflecting on this because it's not even essential to the novel for Huxley to have this little aside. It's like a paragraph or two, but just to have this little 
notion, it made me think about Marcuse and Odordo, but Marcuse specifically thinking about how you could almost say there's this fall in the tendency of the rate of repression or something. And, mm-hmm. and how Huxley is, is kind of saying, well, humans wouldn't like this. Although he's, I mean, Huxley, he's putting this in the, the mouth of someone we, whom we shouldn't trust, who likes the society the way it is in this perfect stability, identity, whatever mm-hmm. the, the mottos, it, mottos are. But uh, I was just kind of thinking how working through the dialectic that Marcuse is going through, the way you put it, which I thought was brilliant, was um, although repression as process is coextensive with history, it cannot be synchronized with it, right? And, and you say some other kind of brilliant things too uh, about this the synchronicity of repression in history, but it kind of made me think too that, that Huxley may have been sort of vibing with some of what you you end up with at the end of the essay and some of what Marcuse is trying to think through dialectically. I've never read Brave New World, unfortunately, but I will do if um, <laughs> I'm very curious about these resonances. So, yeah. um, no, that's very, very interesting. And I don't know much about Huxley. I don't know much about his politics. And Adorno has a very interesting essay on Huxley and prisms. Mm. Okay. Um, which I read not so long ago, which is very interesting. Again, talking about, in a way, the kind of, you know, the uh, saying that the book is more interesting is not just um, partly defending the philosophical interest of the book against critics who just say it's um, a reactionary fable about the dangers of the dangers of social engineering. Right. But also, like, seeing how it's, it's limited, you know, kind of Huxley's... Uh, Huxley has a really interesting premise, but um, doesn't follow through on some of the interesting ramifications. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's particularly that the I think the reason why the book stuck with me is how it thinks through some of Freud's categories. You know, it thinks through the notions of drive and even kind of thinks through death drive in a certain way, which is collectively distributed. Everyone's kind of got a Logan's Run timer on their. Uh, on their heads, you know, and and the bodies themselves are not necessarily cremated or buried, but turned back into the the substance to regenerate more embryos and all this. But I know we're 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 sort of at a good stopping point. There was one question and that I had that kind of loose and fun, and we can kind of end on that note. I was just thinking about how I was reading your Wikipedia page just for uh, interest, in making sure that I kept up on. Your bibliography, but I saw at the bottom that Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of True Detective, references you in an interview saying that your work, I assume he means Nile Unbound, but he could mean some of your essays too, helped inspire the creation of True Detective. Have you heard this or have you seen this said? Someone told, mentioned this a few years ago, and uh, I saw the, uh, the first, first season. season yeah. Of, uh, I mean, I thought it started off very promisingly. <laughs> um, wasn't quite kind of convinced by. Um, yeah, it, it kind of intimated that kind of metaphysical dimensions that it didn't really kind of deliver on. But Thomas Ligotti is clearly the kind of the, the fundamental influence gotcha. on, on that on that season. And um, if anyone, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. It's a, it's an unexpected surprise. That's um, the writer you know, reference my stuff. It's not every day a philosopher gets right. to have an impact <laughs> on popular culture like that, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's nice, to, but I don't, I mean, I think Ligotti, 
You know, <laughs> the ideas and the Ligotti deserves, he's the inspiration. You know, gotcha. He's the kind of, uh, the key inspiration and um, everything else would be kind of secondary or tributary to that primary information. Inspiration, well, sorry. I'll let you be modest. I think that <laughs> I, I, I can, I have to go back and rewatch now thinking of our conversation and, and your work. The time is a flat circle. I can almost see kind of in this notion of uh, time introducing kind of a, a disjuncture in, in thinking or how is it you, I'm sorry, you, you put it, uh, the disequilibrium, sorry, the disequilibrium which time introduces into knowing, right? As you, as you kind of phrase it, this is what the enlightenment contributes. And also this this notion of Prometheism in general and of uh, of Adorno and Marcuse and what you're working through with progress and the question about disequilibrium and whether or not humans should have the right and the freedom to enter into enter their own disequilibriums into the world as though this were somehow prohibited, right? This very question I, I found to be at least resonant on a certain level. But uh <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I, I found that I found that entertaining. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the key thing is in a way the disequilibrium that human beings should be allowed to inject into the world and to release into the world should be creative and not the kind of the banal and destructive disequilibriums of the free market, for instance. So in other words, right. it's not like saying, if you say the world is a chaos of forces, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore, you know, um, capitalist competition and the free markets are merely kind of, it's a secondary iterations of this primordial chaos. That's a very, very conservative. That's a way in which like affirming the chaos of the world ends up being a, making sure that nothing will change. Yes. Okay. And it's, a, it's the ultimate kind of, you know, conservative position. Okay. There's a way of embracing chaos that is completely conservative because it naturalizes chaos. And the right. point is not to naturalize chaos, but to say that actually the world as it is, and even the, the, what we take to be these natural dynamisms, which we are so impressed by, are nothing compared to the dynamisms that we could collectively generate. But for genuinely kind of creative, not, not for kind of destructive, but for kind of um, beneficent ends. Because maybe, um, you know, the good is more creative and more interestingly generative than the bad. Mm -hmm. Take it as a platonic hypothesis. <laughs> so the point is, is to kind of um, not to naturalize chaos, but in a way to denaturalize it. And by saying that we can, the ways in which we can unmake and remake ourselves and our world could be produced without this kind of, um, without the cheap pathos of creative destruction. Okay? Yeah which is really, I think everyone, it's, you know, we, we now see like how um, pathetic and banal the kind of the, the pathos of creative destruction is. And it's mm -hmm. really, there's something a little bit kind of, um, you know, that worshipping it or elevating it into this kind of cosmic power is, um, is a capitulation, you know, mm -hmm. it's a gesture of submission and not a very courageous posture at all. Coop, I'll let you uh, have the, the last word if, you, if you'd wish. I don't have anything to add other than to say I'm a tremendous fan of your project, Ray, and I'm uh, you know, just very honored that you decided to spend these few hours chatting with us. It was uh, 
this was the first podcast I've been nervous for in, in quite some time. And I've done, <laughs> I've done over 200 plus. So if that says anything, I, I'm very uh, grateful. Well, thanks very much for um, inviting me. Thanks for a really, really interesting conversation. I echo Cooper, you know, I, I appreciate your time and you coming. And I've already kind of said my indebtedness to you since you began this conversation, kind of talking about some of your your influences, even if not by name, then at least, you know, collectively, you're one of the first to grab my attention and to kind of open my horizon outside of my Nietzschean teens and, and these other things, and in, including to the fact that um, there are there, there were these thinkers out there who were in need of translation and that perhaps that could be something that I could share in and share with others. So that was something that kind of made it so that I, uh, I realized like, hey, there are so many books out there and so many languages. And the one I was at least interested in, I didn't necessarily have to sit back and wait and I could actually participate and hopefully help to open up the discussion more. So you you kind of were, were always that that inspiration. So I just have to thank you for that. I, I owe a huge debt to you for that. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, I'm, you know, it's, it's really incredibly kind. Thanks. I'm very, I'm very glad if, if something I did uh, was fruitful in that way. So that's oh, yeah. thanks. I'm very, I'm very happy. I'm very happy to hear that. And I know I'm not the only one. My, he was also on the, the reply to Liz essay, Sid Littlefield, he was my teacher and he helped to show me, he's always been interested in your work and, um, and he helped to kind of broaden my horizons. I don't think I would be either the person or the, the thinker I am today without, without having come in contact with your work. So, so I can't thank you enough just for that, but I also really thank you for, for your generosity and your time today. Not at all. Very, I'm very glad to do it. And uh, thanks, thank you for um, for engaging. You know, I'm for engaging yeah. with my work, for asking me questions about stuff I've done. Yeah. Because um, um, yes, it's it's very heartening to be able to kind of you know, discuss these things. So thanks again. Thank you, Ray. We'll we'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening. And I look forward to uh, to your work on fatelessness. I I'm already anticipating it, and um, and we just thank you again. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Um, you too. Have a good day. You Have too. A good day. Cheers, Ray. Thanks Cheers. again, Ray. Bye Cheers. bye. Once again, thanks to Ray Brassier, and that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the dream, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, 
Lobotomized people as in uh, block work or range. <laughs> 